Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. La Trobe, Asia has recently released a new issue of the La Trobe, Asia Brief, looking at the relationship between Australia and China and the challenges it presents. With me today is one of the contributing authors, Hugh Dan. Dan is the Deputy Director of the Australian Studies Centre at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Matt. So when I asked you to contribute to this publication and I asked you for a title, the first title that you came back with is Why is China Pissed Off with Australia? Yeah, it's a bit too colloquial for, <laughs> <laughs> for opinion. I, 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 I played the editor role and went for something slightly less antagonistic, but it still poses that question, maybe in not strong terms. Are China pissed off with Australia and, and why? If you could give me a broad overview of, of why that's the title that you thought was a good one. First, thank you for revising that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think somehow I was using those words and I was trying to capture the sentiment felt on the Chinese side. And as I said in the European piece, I'm not trying to make a judgment, let alone a value judgment on Australia's policy or bilateral relations. But what I'm trying to present is more like the perception of Chinese about bilateral relationship, the current situations, you know, everything, and you know, the reasons and causes. I can tell you that, that there have been quite a number of Chinese, including the middle class, the better educated groups, who would come to me, knowing that I do Australian studies, with the question, how and why did Australia become anti-China? And please know that anti-China is exactly the word they used. Mm. So that's exactly why I use that. And I'm sure that from uh, Global Times and all the <laughs> well, Global Times, just one end of the spectrum of Chinese media. But from those state media, I think the Australians have already had a very good idea of the Chinese sentiment. Perception is one thing. Reality is another. Do you think it's an accurate one then? I think there may be a gap between what Australia wanted to convey and how what Australia said and did was perceived in China. So that's part of the things I'm trying to do in the European piece, just trying to you know point out or explain to the Australian side why the Chinese government feels extremely or particularly offended. So what actions do you think Australia has been taking to antagonize China and to bring up that anti-China perception? I think the perception on the Chinese side is that Australia has expressed its discontent and opposition in virtually every major issue. Mm. This is exactly why, as the point I was trying to make in, in the European piece, somehow when it comes to foreign policy, you have to try to, you know, strike a balance, having a louder voice on some issues, which, you know, definitely are your priorities, but with others, you would come down a little bit and just, you know, try the other channels or just to stay calmer. But the situation with Australia for the past two years is that we have seen Australia becoming firm. And the word I use in the opinion piece, I would use that again, spearheading. So Australia would have a quite loud voice in virtually everything. And also for some of them, and foreign investment is one example I used in the piece, is Australia really are two action ahead of all other advanced economies. Well, let's wade into that if we could. You have been doing research into G7 countries. 
what their investment policy and procedures are in relation to China. And you see a lot of similarities with Australia and in some ways them taking their cues from Australia. So can you talk me through that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, this is an, uh, an ongoing study that we are doing right now. We are comparing the foreign investment policy, regulatory policy, and also laws across G7 countries and Australia. What we have found is that Australia to action or effected institutional changes in foreign investment regulation ahead of all G7 countries. I can give you some examples. A very familiar story our Australian audience we know about is the controversy over Davenport. Late in October, when Lambridge's uh, lease with Davenport was approved, that was when the controversy started. And I still remember at that time I was doing a one-hour interview in the studio with Jay Fraby mm. as well as James Lawrenson across the air. And Jay and James were just trying to explain the Australia situation. But looking back, that was the start of everything. Because about two months later, we see David Irvine, who used to be the head of ASIO and was also ISIL. He was appointed as a member of Foreign Investment Review Board, which is you know the agency under Treasury, which would look at all the individual merchant acquisition cases. That was the start of a placing a higher emphasis on the national security aspect of the merchant and acquisition proposal. And then in March 2016, uh, following the outcome of Darwin case, we see that the federal government very early on in early 2016 reaffirmed the federal jurisdiction over acquisition by a foreign investor over critical infrastructure. Mm. So the intention was very clear. He said the state and territory governments, they may prioritize their economic performance over national security. That's how the federal government was looking at it. And that's why the federal government reaffirmed the jurisdiction at the federal level, saying that, well, next time if there's anything like that, a foreign investor trying to get hold of a piece of local critical infrastructure, the federal government will have some saying this because the federal government will look more into the national security implication of the deal. So that was definitely a follow-up of the Darwin controversy. And then in 2017, very early on, we haven't seen such organizations in other countries as well. It's the establishment of the CIC, and this is also part of the concern over critical infrastructure. And then the accompanying bill was introduced to both houses in December 2017, and it was passed four months later. But it was also in 2017, in April, that David Irvine, who used to be a member, was appointed to be a member of FERB, and then became the chairman of the Foreign Investment Review Board after Wilson stepped down. And also uh, 2018 in August, we see the 5G security guidelines over the future building of 5G. So that's when we see Huawei and ZTU were banned from Australia's 5G mm. network. So when you look at this, and also when you look at the situation in other G7 countries, Canada and America have been mostly slow with institutional things. And America just started about six months ago with a pilot program. And the main focus was on high tech 
And also, among G7 countries, the earliest one would be Germany, but Germany didn't take action until mid-2017. So the first G7 country to act was 18 months later than Australia. So that's a point I was trying to make about mm. Australia sort of walking ahead. Much of what Australia is doing, though, isn't explicitly targeting China. It's, and I'm, I'm not defending it, but it's blanket against foreign investment or foreign activity. It's pro-Australian investment, being very cautious about foreign strategic moves in our country as well. So how does that extend to just anti-China when, if you look at the rules, that they are anti-foreign? For a lot of decisions and policies, it's one thing what you intended, and it's another how it was received on the other side. I'm going to take the foreign interference law as an example. I personally wouldn't think that the law was targeting Chinese or was targeting Chinese interference, as what we said. I'm using quotation mark now. <laughs> the thing is, for example, when Malcolm Turnbull unfortunately made that speech and even used the Chinese to repeat what he wanted to say, but the Australians have stood up. I mean, that whole message, the messaging itself was was received very negatively by the Chinese side because what the Chinese I saw was that, well, the prime minister was promoting or trying to justify the law by saying that this is part of what the Australians are doing to show that they have stood up mm. <laughs> towards the Chinese. I and mean, you repeated that in Chinese, which is definitely it's, 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 it's against us. I mean, this is a conversation I've had with quite some Australian officials and scholars recently. It's about messaging. But as a scholars, I mean, we go one step further. We go one step further to see uh, the reasons the reasons behind or whether this is a good way to message or a bad way to message. And fortunately, the current prime minister is of a very different style. <laughs> so you don't see those things anymore. But there's something else that I want to talk about now. And I want to show to the Australians that there's something that is perceived by the other end, but is not felt by the Australians themselves. Nothing for investment is a very good example. Mm. A lot of scholars would say, well, this just shows that Australia is doing what other countries are doing. And my argument would be, no, Australia is doing, well, as you said, it's similar with what other countries are doing. But when you look at the timeline, clearly Australia is doing a lot of things ahead of other countries. But there are good reasons for that. When we look at Australia's foreign investment policy for the past 15 years, especially since 2005 when Chinese investment into Australia became substantial, we saw a surge of Chinese investment. Mm. The Labour government and also the current government, they have been responding, which is understandable, to all the changing situations. For example, the surging investment and also quite some investment from state-owned enterprises, which can become a source of concern, and also shifting interest, for example, into some sectors that can be sensitive. So this is partly what we are doing back in China to tell them that Australia is not going to be summarizing 10 words. 
beat foreign policy or foreign investment policy. So we're trying to explain the logic behind because since 2005, I mean, with the surge of Chinese investment, you have seen a lot of debates. Controversy and also responses, and I think this explains quite well why institutions, against, for example, based on the concerns of critical infrastructure and high tech, the institutions over all that were affecting in Australia early on because the controversy and debate in the ten years before that already paved the way for the national debate. This is a part of why it's not surprising. But for those who don't know much about Australia's foreign investment history,、mm. easily they would come to the conclusion that Australia is anti-China.、Mm. Do you think that Australia is missing out then by having a antagonistic approach with China, by not signing on to the Belt and Road, by being too defensive with Chinese investment, that we are missing opportunities? The Chinese and Australian economies, the two economies, are definitely complementary. For example, China will always be after resources and energy, and also Australia does have its competitive edges in things like agricultural products,、mm. and also for trading services like tourism and education. Australia will always be a top destination for China. But it's definitely true. I mean, when you look at the policy approach and the way that the Chinese like to do things, you do find that economic performance, economic cooperation, as what we say, can be negatively affected by souring bilateral relations. And this, in fact, is what we have observed during the past twelve to eighteen months. In fact, you do see that for all investment is clear, even when you look at trade. Australia's export to China—it's growing, but it's slowing down. The、mm. growth rate is slowing down, and also we are seeing some of the numbers in, for example, education and also tourism start to suffer. I think that's pretty good evidence for that. Yeah, yeah. How would you like to see things change then, or how, how do you think things can change for the better? Do you see a scenario at all? No matter what the federal government, the official level, in you know. Ministerial or even above that, like to do. I think it's really important for people-to-people exchange to go on. And in fact, this is what we Chinese scholars have been trying very hard to do. And also, I think that's why one of the reasons that LTA is doing this special issue. I think it's a great idea for the, you know scholars on two sides to sort of having a dialogue over、uh, what is a problem <laughs> with the current situation and what is a way out. So I think this is really, really important to channel the understanding and. We back in China are trying very hard to present the complicatedness of Australia and to tell them the sentiment and also the mentality of the Australians and why they are doing this and why they are not doing that.、Mm. Yeah, so I think people to people exchange, just like what LTA is doing right now, is is so important.、Uh, China has more Australian study centres than any other country in the world. So, who are we making your job difficult now? Your job of communicating Australia's relationship with China is becoming more negative than positive. Actually, no. <laughs> Actually, we're quite proud of the Australian Studies Centres back in China because 
When ANU launched its Australian Studies Institute last year, the sort of had counted the Australian Study Centers across the world, and their final number was a little bit above seventy.、Mm. Now we have thirty-eight to thirty-nine Australian Study Centers back in China. So that's exactly what you said just now, and we're very proud of this. And also, we think this is a good evidence of the long-time people-to-people exchange between. China and Australia, because most of them are really have been established by Chinese scholars who used to study in Australia. So they come back and study and start all these Australian study centers. And we are doing research on virtually everything about Australia and every aspect of the Australia-China relationship. I wouldn't think the job is tough. Because what the Secretariat is doing is that we have two publications to publish people's outcome, and also we have annual conferences as well as other symposiums and things. All researchers are independent, so they are free to express their views. We have people who tend to feel more defended, and would have, you know, would express、uh, what they want to say in a, for example, in a harsher way. And also, we would have people who seem to be more moderate. So it's it's totally about what they are doing and how they are going to present their scholarly opinions.、Mm. And really, the scholars are free to comment on what they do. So we are truly very proud of that. And And I can tell you something more that, that we're doing right now. Is about a week ago, we were in Canberra and we started this trilateral workshop on Australian Studies with NU's Australian Studies Institute and also the Australian Studies Centre at the University of Cologne. So it's really a trilateral initiative between China, Australian, and German. Research institutions, and it's really interesting because we talk about migration、mm. and social cultural change, and we find such trilateral approach is so enlightening and inspiring because it's a multilateral and multidisciplinary workshop, and we have to sit there to hear you know people talking from other disciplines and also the Germans you know talking about their views. One good comment I can tell you about is, for example, one of the scholars was. Commenting on the current problems with having too many Chinese students in Australia, why Australia shifted its policy somehow. Both of us were talking about it because Australia somehow has seen education as a sector, as an industry, and then suddenly our German colleague would say, "Well, in Germany, it's seen in a different light." Because we don't think education should be a sector.、Mm. In Germany, education is free. Even university education is free. We think there are more values and there are more aspects to be considered when you, you know, trying to evaluate the situation, also to figure out a solution.、Mm. So we think this kind of, you know, it's like I said, people-to-people exchange like this. Can be really rewarding.、Mm. It sounds like the government sectors and the business sectors could learn a lot then from the cooperation that's going on between the universities. We do think that somehow the government can become more pragmatic、mm. and more innovative in terms of talks. For example, why can't the defence minister and also you know the head of DFAT? I mean, both countries used to have two plus two with other countries, and two plus two can be a good idea between、mm. China and Australia. There are a lot of examples like that, but the most important thing is to talk. All right.
Hudan, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and a multitude of other podcasting platforms. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.